Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. Well, good morning, Dayspring. It's good to be back with you and always great to be home for breaks and to be able to worship with you. This is the church that I launched from into ministry, and it's always great to come back and see what the Lord is still doing here and how he's using you in the surrounding community and around the world as well, through many people that have been here and gone out. Uh, I want to bring you greetings from my university, Ohio Christian University, and our new president, Dr. Ron Smith, who some of you will know. He was president at Wesley Biblical Seminary at one point, and so we're really excited to have him there and excited for what the Lord's going to be doing through his leadership at OCU. One of the things that I have the privilege to do at OCU is to chair the theology and ministry department, and so I have the opportunity to oversee all of our theology and ministry programs, and we get to prepare the next generation of leaders for the church. So if you have students who you think are headed in that direction with their lives, I would love to talk to them about coming and studying with us. We are an evangelical Wesleyan Holiness University, and we're trying to prepare ministers that not only understand the Bible, but understand the fullness of the life that uh, Christ wants to live in and through us, and the holiness that he wants to send out into the world through his people. But uh, we're excited about all those things. But I want to ask you this morning to turn to Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Dad mentioned just a moment ago that he and I had been working on a book, and we're, we're doing it with a scholar at Asbury Theological Seminary, our friend Tom McCall. We've been working on a book on the doctrine of, or the teaching on, good works. And I actually want to share a little bit this morning from some of the insights that have emerged for me from that book. And I want to begin, though, with a question that is going to date me a little bit. I want you to think about what was your first CD that you ever owned? Or your first record? Maybe some of you need to go there instead, okay? First CD or first record, whatever the first kind of physical piece of music that you owned was. Do you have it? Do you have it in your mind? Okay. So my first one was actually a CD, not a record, and it was Jars of Clay. Do you guys remember them? Jars of Clay, and it was their self-titled album. And actually, on that album, at, the, at that point when I, got, when I got it, there was a song by Josh Kugel, who was going to Dayspring at that point. He's a pastor now, and he's gone out from Dayspring. He's pastoring in Louisiana, I believe, or at least was at one point. And so... There was a song from him on there, and that was my first one. And they were kind of a a, a nice, good way. And by the way, I'm the oldest Freedman, right? So this was a nice, easy way to transition the Freedman family into kids having music, right? Well, my next one was a little bit different. It was DC Talk, Jesus Freak. So we we go from kind of folk, folk pop to pretty hard rock and a little bit of rap. And I, man, I tell you what, I got that CD and I seriously thought that I was going to get in trouble because somebody else had given me that CD. I was just like, the Freedman household had never had music like that before. So that, that was, that was my, my second CD was, was DC Talk, Jesus Freak. And on that CD, there was a, a song called, What If I Stumble? You guys remember this song? Okay. And at the beginning of the song, before the, the music even started, there's a crackly recording that comes on. And it goes like this. It's just a voice speaking. It says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door 
and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I can say it to this day because it just made that much of an impact on me. I, I have had it stuck in my head for, for years now. Now, why is it? And by the way, it's a quote from Brennan Manning. So let's ask this question. Why is that kind of Christian, Christian so common today? And there are a number of different ways that we could answer that question, I think. One way is perhaps it's because some of us disobey the faith that we know to be true. We know that we should live differently. We know that we should live holy lives, and we don't. Sometimes it's that we misunderstand the faith, right? We, we don't really fully get that we're supposed to actually live lives. We've been maybe told the wrong gospel or something like that, or a partial gospel. But sometimes it's because we are obeying the faith that we've been taught. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that some of us have been told that you don't have to or you don't need to live a certain kind of life when you become a Christian. That salvation is primarily about just being forgiven. You say a prayer and you're forgiven, and then you just live forgiven, but you live a life that doesn't look anything like the life of Christ. Our friend Tom McCall has put together some quotes that actually are in the front of this book, and these are just kind of samples. Let me see if you've ever heard something like this. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? We are saved by faith alone, and good works has nothing to do with it. I've heard things like that. How about this? If you've said the sinner's prayer, your salvation is eternally guaranteed. Right? You just say a prayer, and then that's it. Right? It's, it's a done deal. doesn't matter what you do after that point. You've got fire insurance. How about this one? Rejoice in the fact that there is nothing that you or anyone else could ever do to undo what Christ has done for you. Or this one. Your good works don't get you saved, and they cannot keep you saved either. Now, in some of those quotes that I just gave you, there is an, an ounce of truth. But all of those quotes are not taking a full account, a biblical account, of what good works should look like and should mean in the Christian life. So this morning, what I want to do is help us to untangle some things that I think will help us to see better how it is that good works really do factor into the Christian life without undermining the reality of grace and the importance of faith. Because for a lot of us, the, the reason that a lot of people don't think that works are important, that good works are important in the Christian life, is because we think, well, grace, right? It's all about grace, and grace and works are at odds with each other. But I think what we're going to find in this passage is that there's a different perspective. What if, what if grace and faith and good works, what if all those things fit together in a way that we haven't understood? And that's what I want to explore this morning. So let's turn to our passage, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, based on what we've already talked about, you probably had a couple of verses stand out to you there, right? Verses 8, 9, and 10 seem to be pretty important in this regard. And it's really interesting because Paul talks about grace and faith, right? But then he goes on to say that we're created to do good works. So somehow this is fitting together for Paul in a way that it doesn't fit together in most of our minds, particularly if you live in, the Missis- in Mississippi, in the Bible Belt, right? It's, it's very easy to get these things tangled up and say, well, these are mutually exclusive. Paul somehow has a, has a way of putting them all together. And that's what I want to look at. Now, just a little bit of overall context here. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, of course, and he went to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Now he's writing to them. He's in prison as he's writing this letter, probably in prison in Rome in about 62 or 60 to 62 AD, somewhere in there. Now, he's writing to these Ephesians, and most of them are formerly Gentiles. They're coming from a Gentile background. They didn't know God. They were living pagan lives, and they've come to Christ now, and he's writing to tell them really two things. He wants to tell them about who they are in Christ. That's chapters 1 to 3. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he wants to talk about what it looks to live out this new life that we've been given in Christ. So that's the big picture. That means that we're like right smack dab in the middle here in chapter 2. We're right in the middle of this who you are, your new identity kind of section. So there are a few things that are really important about what he says here. First off, this whole passage that we just read, it rotates around a contrast. Paul begins by talking about who the Ephesians were at one time. He says, here's here's what you used to be like. And he talks about the, the bondage that they were in, how they were dead in trespasses and sins. And there's this interesting phrase. He says that they were following the prince of the power of the air. What is going on there? I mean, that's one of my first questions that I, when I read this passage. And what we think is happening here is that Paul is describing things to them in a, a worldview that they accept and can understand. And in, the, in this ancient worldview that he's describing, there's this idea that there's sort of the atmospheric heaven, what we would call, you know, the, the sky, right? But within our own atmosphere, that, that that is a place where evil spirits resided. And the prince of the power of the air then would probably be Satan or some other spiritual power that is over all those beings that inhabit that kind of mid-heaven area. Does that make sense? So he's saying that they were following, basically following Satan or some other spiritual power under Satan. So they were in bondage, and they were in bondage not only that, but to their own desires as well. And what Paul's doing here is giving them a really honest look at who they once were. And friends, this is an important thing to do in the Christian life. It's pretty easy 
once you've known Jesus for a while, to start forgetting exactly how bad you were when he found you. Isn't it? I mean, for some of us, that was decades and decades ago. For some of us, it might have just been a few years ago. But the further you get from that point, the easier it is to forget the amazing grace that has been extended to each of us. A while back, I moved to Ohio, and I'm in my fifth year at OCU, so I moved to Ohio in 2018, and I found out that Circleville water is really special. So I live in Circleville, Ohio. It's about 30 minutes south of Columbus, and the water that we have there, I mean, I know now my parents live in Jackson. The water's really special there, (laughs) and you have to pay attention to the news just to see how special it's going to be on any given day, right? Circleville is just consistently special, okay? And what's special about it is that we have lots and lots of minerals in our water. I remember I'd been in Ohio for maybe a few weeks and the semester started. I was going to the cafeteria to get my food and I just started noticing that there were these like, it looks like somebody hadn't cleaned the silverware. Like there were stains on, on the silverware. It's like, did they not wash these things or what? And then I started realizing, no, the same stains are coming onto my own silverware at home that I do wash. And it's because we have lots of minerals in our water. So I thought to myself, I, I can't just drink this stuff. It, there's something a little bit off with it. So I got myself a Brita water pitcher, right? I'm just like a good, a good adult now. I, I fully, fully stepped into adulthood, got a Brita water pitcher. All right, and I started using that thing, right? You replace the filter. So I, I use this thing. I don't know. It'd probably been a, a year or something, and I've never had to use one of these before. I don't know what the rules are. I don't read the instructions. But I start... After some time, I start looking at my water pitcher and thinking, my goodness, like my my counter isn't green, but that pitcher sure has a green tint to it. And I don't know, like it looks mostly clear, but there's something a little bit off with it. So I finally, I get around to one of those times where I need to replace the filter in it. So I pull the filter out and then I, uh, you know, pour, pour the water. I think I actually poured it out to like make some coffee or something, pour it into my coffee maker. And I then take a, a paper towel and I swab the bottom of that pitcher. And friends, have you ever heard of algae? I, I basically was growing some on the bottom of my water pitcher. So I came out and swabbed out this green stuff, and, and I realized this is what I've been drinking, right? I had this real moment of, of honesty. So now I know you actually have to clean these pitchers occasionally. You can't just use them for years on end and just replace the filter. Now, what Paul has done in these first three verses is basically that, but for our spiritual lives. To say, this is who you were. But then, in verse 4, there's a big shift. And it starts with these two words, but God. And in some sense, I think you could summarize the whole gospel with those two words. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he what? Made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Before, we were walking in trespasses. And before, we were dead in our trespasses. But now, God makes us alive with Christ Jesus. And there's a cool thing that happens here, and you can see it a little bit more clearly in the Greek. Paul does this thing where he likes to put a particular Greek preposition on the front of different words. And the preposition is soon. And it basically means with or together. 
And Paul likes to slap this on the front of a lot of different words. In fact, we have some words in the New Testament that, as far as we know, never occurred prior to Paul with this word on the front of them. Soon. And it's like he just wants to emphasize that all these things happen together with. So there are three, three verbs here. They're, the way they're translated for you is uh, made us alive together, raised us up with, and seated us with. And all of those in Greek have soon on the front of them. So he's emphasizing, hey, we, we do all these things with Christ. God has done these things for us with Christ. We've been united to Christ so that what is true of Christ is now also true of us. So we've been made, Christ has been made alive, right? In the resurrection. Christ has not only been made alive, but he's been raised up to the right hand of the Father. And he's been seated on the throne. And those things are true of us as well, in as much as we are united to and found in Christ. But then he goes on to explain what it is really that God has done. Now, he's given us the, base, the basic deal in the first few verses there. But in verse 8, he really wants to drill in and say, this is what God has done. In, in making you alive and seating you with and raising you with Christ, here's what's happened. And he starts talking about this word grace. The Greek word is charis. And, and a lot of the time when we talk about grace, if you ask somebody, what is grace? A common thing that you'll hear is grace is unmerited favor. And actually, that's a pretty good definition, unmerited favor. But there's something really interesting that has happened in our modern context. We have imported something additional into unmerited favor. So there, let me just give you two different ways that you can think about grace. Uh, grace, by the way, is a way of thinking about gifts. It's, it's, a, it's a language of giving and receiving, right? And we just got done with the big season of giving and receiving. But in the ancient world, this word grace could be used to talk about gifts. And there are two ways to think about what makes something the ideal gift. And there are a lot more than two, but two that I just want to share with you this morning. One is a true gift. The ideal gift is something that is unmerited, right? Unmerited favor. It's something that's undeserved, in other words. Something that you didn't earn. When you earn something, we call it compensation, we call it pay, we call it reward, right? But when you're given something, that's a gift, right? And a gift is something that is unmerited, you might say. But there's also another way that you can think about what makes something the ideal gift. And that is, you could say that the ideal gift is a gift that comes with no strings attached, in fact, we can see this uh, in, in a lot of modern contexts, right? You give, you give somebody a gift and you say, it's just a gift. There are no strings attached. My family, uh, just before Christmas, we watched the movie Christmas with the Cranks. Anybody ever watch that one? Okay, so it's basically about a, a couple that decides that they're going to skip out on Christmas and take a cruise instead. And so they decide that they're not going to do any Christmas stuff. So all their neighbors are really disappointed. And at the end of the movie, they realize, well, actually, we do want to stay home for Christmas because our daughter's going to be here. But they have these tickets to go on this amazing, you know, trip of a lifetime kind of cruise. And they have these neighbors and uh, across the street, and the, the guy is a real jerk. And he's been mean to him the whole movie. And his wife, though, they find out that she has cancer and it's come back. And they're not sure how much longer that she has. So uh, Luther Crank, the main character, 
he decides towards the end of the movie, I'm going to go and give these tickets to this nasty neighbor of mine. And when he goes in and gives it to him, he says, look, I just want to give this to you guys. And he says, there are no strings attached. That, that's what for him makes it like a true gift. No strings attached. And for a lot of us, that's the way that we think about what makes a gift a gift. What makes grace grace is that there are no strings attached. But can I tell you something? That's not the way that Paul and people in his world tended to think about gifts. That's actually a modern notion that we've kind of come up with and we've added in it. And, and it's not necessarily always a bad thing. But let me ask you this. Is it even true of us? So when you give gifts, for example, most of us have given quite a few gifts over the last few weeks. When you give gifts, are there really no strings attached? Right? I mean, Austin, I don't know what you got, Kelsey, but I assume that when you gave her that gift, you thought that you were doing something to maintain your relationship, right? And to build your relationship, right? And you probably got her what you got her because she's your wife, right? And probably got her something nicer than you got, I don't know, your third cousin, right? Yeah, probably so. So often when we do give gifts, there is some sort of expectation, Maybe, maybe the expectation, the string that's attached is, well, gratitude, right? So when you receive a gift, we kind of all realize you need to say thank you. And if you don't say thank you, then you've done something wrong, right? Maybe it's loyalty, right? You give somebody a gift and you kind of expect them to be true to you, to not talk about you badly behind your back, right? You would feel weird if you gave somebody an amazing gift and then they just turned around and you found out a week later that they've been saying t- terrible things about you. That would be kind of weird. So actually, we don't even really do this in our world. But in Paul's world, there was something called the patronage system. And the patronage system in Paul's world was about as central to the ancient world in, in the Greco-Roman context as the internet is to ours. It was just like the foundational building block of society. And in the patronage system, there were two main parties. You would have a patron who was somebody that we would say was well-endowed. They had, they had means, they had perhaps money, they had connections, basically the more powerful party. But then there was this other person called the client. And the client was somebody who didn't have as much, and they would develop this relationship with the patron. Now, the client didn't really have any money or anything to give the patron. The patron would use their money, their connections to help the client, and the client would return loyalty. Now, what's interesting is, when the patron would give the client something, guess what that was called? Charis. The same word for grace. And when the client returned loyalty back to the patron, guess what that was called? Pistis, which is the word for faith. Interesting, isn't it? So, when Paul's using these terms, he's actually using terms that had a place in the patronage system of his own day. And what's interesting is, in the patronage system, gifts were always given with an expectation of what we might call reciprocity or return. There were always strings attached. You were creating relationships and maintaining relationships with the gifts that were given. Now, we have to ask ourselves this question, though, when we read Paul. How is Paul thinking about these gifts, right? Does Paul think that when God gives us a gift, he's expecting a return? And what I would say is yes. Because while he says that, yes, for by grace you've been saved, right? It's a gift. Through faith, you receive it as a gift. This is not your own doing. You couldn't earn it, right? It's unmerited for sure. 
It is the gift of God, not by works. You couldn't have earned it so that no one can boast. But then he goes on to say, we always forget verse 10. He goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, right? We serve a God who is a worker. We serve a God who's a creator. And he's made us in his image. So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? We've been given this new life for good works. Does God expect us to do good works? Yes. Is that part of the package? Yes, it's part of the package. Does that make it not grace? No. You see, when Paul says that salvation is by grace through faith, here's what he means. Salvation is a gift that you could not have earned and that you must receive as a gift. If you try to earn it, that that won't work. But at the same time, it's a gift that comes with strings attached. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like no fun. I wanted a no strings attached gift, right? I want one of those Christmas with the cranks kind of cruises, right? I want no strings attached. But do we? I think that we should just be so thankful that we serve a God that gives a gift that has strings attached. A God that gives us a gift that in some sense has to have strings attached. Because it's not just about God handing us something and saying, here's here's a ticket to heaven, right? You're forgiven, go do your own thing. This God that we serve, the gift that he gives us is the kind of gift that has to have strings attached. Because God doesn't just say, I'm going to forgive you from the penalty of sin. He says, I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you can be delivered from the power of sin. And then ultimately what I want to do is I want to, through that same spirit, deliver you from the sinful nature that you were born into. I want to have a relationship with you, is what God says. And so there are these strings of grace that connect us to him. And when he gives us this gift, it's like he's, he's, he's made a connection with us. And these bonds of covenant love and covenant loyalty, he draws us to himself. And what do those bonds look like? Well, one of the things they look like is good works. And that's why in the Wesleyan tradition, we call these things means of grace. There are what we might call works of piety and works of mercy. Remember, there are two greatest commandments, right? The the greatest commandment, The first first greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, all your your soul, all your mind, all your strength. But the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So when we fulfill that first commandment, we call those works of piety, right? When we worship God, when we come together to worship him as a community, when we pray, when we read our Bibles. But then there are also works of mercy where we love our neighbor as ourselves. And those are incredibly important too. And those are part of the strings that are attached in God's gift to us. He wants to actually make us different kind of people so that we are living the life that he wants us to live. Now, one thing that's great about Dayspring is that you have a history of good works. You have a history of allowing God to draw you with those strings of grace, those bonds of covenant loyalty. You're a church that has spent time in nursing homes and spends time in nursing homes. 
you're a church that goes out to the prison. You're a church that helped close down the last abortion clinic in Mississippi. And these are all things, not to t- for us to take credit for, but for us to praise God for, that God has done those things through you. But let me ask you a question. Do you want that to not just be a part of your past, but also a part of your future? And if we do want that to be a part of Dayspring's future, then what we need to do is watch how we're walking. One of the big themes in Ephesians is walking. You actually see at the very beginning of this passage, we were walking in our trespasses. But then he talks at the very end about the good works that God wants us to walk in. So as we take a step forward into this new year, into 2023, let me ask you, how are you walking? Are you responding to that gift that God has given you? Are you taking what he's given you and are you using it for others? Are you returning praise and thanksgiving to God, right? Acts of piety, first greatest commandment. Are you also reaching out to others around you, works of mercy? And I'm not asking, are you a part of a church where other people do that? But are you doing that? Am I doing that? And, and frankly, I, I need to do a better job of this. Uh, it's been hard for me to find a good opportunity like this, but I've realized uh, over the last few months, God's been just speaking to me and saying, you know what, Caleb, you've got a nursing home that's a block from your apartment. You've never been there before. Maybe I need to call them. That's my action step. And I want to ask you right now, whatever you're doing right now in life, whatever good works look like in your life, what do they need to look like in 2023? What does it look like to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself in 2023? What step do you need to take to walk in those good works that God has created you to do? That when you do them, you are becoming more of who God made you to be. What does it look like to take a next step into the good works that God has not only created you to do, but has prepared you to do? He's prepared things for you this year. Are you and I going to do them? And I think we just need to praise God for being the kind of God who would put his strings of grace on us and to draw us to himself so that we can be a different kind of person, so that we can go out and be his witnesses in the world to transform this community in, in Clinton, Mississippi, and also to transform my community in Circleville, Ohio, for the kingdom of God. I want to invite the musicians back up, and we're going to transition to communion in a moment. But I just want to ask you to, to just close your eyes for a moment and to think about what your next step is. As you walk into this new year, what is your next step with good works? with receiving the grace that God has given you and then taking that and returning love to him and love to others. What's that next step going to be? Lord, we praise you because you came and you saved us when we were dead in our trespasses. You made us alive with Christ. You raised us with Christ. You seated us with Christ. And Lord, you've given us this gift, this gift that transforms us 
to being people that look like Jesus. And Lord, I ask this morning that as we receive your grace through communion, that you would help us to take the gift that you've given us and to respond, to respond with thanks and with praise. To remember what you've done for us and then to turn and to show that same love to others. Amen.